Good morning. We're in, back in the book of 1 Samuel. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Samuel. We're in chapter 15. Lance Armstrong. What do you think of when I say that name? What comes to your mind? Greatness, endurance, strength, a winner, foolish, liar, cheat. In 2001, Lance Armstrong made a anti-doping commercial for Nike in which he strongly disavowed using illegal drugs. In the commercial, Armstrong boldly stated, this is my body and I can do whatever I want to it. I can push it, I can study it, tweak it, listen to it. Everybody wants to know what I'm on. When I'm on, I'm on my bike, working six hours a day. That's what I'm on. In 2006, during a sworn testimony and dispute over a $5 million bonus, Armstrong said he wouldn't take drugs because he had to, too much to lose. Quote, the faith of all the cancer survivors around the world, everything I do off the bike would go away, too. It's, it's not about the money for me. It's, it's about the faith that people have put in me over the years. So all that would be erased, end quote. In October 2012, Armstrong was stripped of all the seven Tour de France victories and permanently banned from cycling and any world anti-doping agency sanctioned events. And the CEO of the U.S. anti-doping agency claimed that Armstrong's USPS team, quote, ran the most sophisticated, professionalized, and successful doping program that sports have ever seen, end quote. In 2013 on Oprah, Lance came clean, well, sort of, he admitted to doping, but in so doing, he blamed everyone around him. They forced him to do it. An American hero, a celebrity, a legend, brought down by his own hubris and still in denial about it. He believed his lies. They were now a part of him. The Bible warns us of deception. Romans 7, 11, Paul describes the role of deception in spiritual bondage. He says, for sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it killed me. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Paul identifies cheap grace with deception. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor Thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. And there's more and more and more passages to talk about deception. And because we're a Bible-preaching church, and because we preach the Bible expositionally, and we, we dive into a book, we come to passages in the Bible that are hard. And we come now to 1 Samuel 15. And we come to a man who is self-deceived. King Saul. A sobering passage. And I want to read the, the chapter in its entirety, so follow with me, starting in verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel, opposing them on the way they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them and tell them 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men in Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and laid in the weight in the valley. And Saul said, the, the Kenites go depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah and, and Farshur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people at the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. And the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry. And he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself. And turned and passed on and went on to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, blessed be to you. Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and, and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone to the, on the mission in which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of, Am, of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, in Gilgal. And Samuel said, as the Lord has great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is a sin of divination and the presumption is iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He, also, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. 
Now, therefore, please, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned to go away and Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret for he is not a man that he shall have regret. Then he said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. And so Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the, the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to the house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. I told you it was heavy. Chapter 15 of 1 Samuel is the pivotal account of the end of Saul's reign. It's the end of Saul and Samuel. The relationship is finished by the end. It's the end of the kingship as seen by God. It's the end of the evil Amalekites, although not completely. And it, and it springs us forward to the reign of a new king, a new hope that we will learn about soon. There's much to discuss in chapter 15, but for our time and for the focus of this chapter, we're going to zero in on the main point of the text. And the main point is the fall of Saul. In this chapter, we see the depth of self-deception that lies in the heart of man. What is it that kills an addict? What is it that kills a man in his addiction to alcohol? Is it that, or is it his denial that, the, that there's a problem? What is it that destroys a marriage? The problems that plague a marriage, or the denial that there's any problems at all? And the resolve, then, to work through those problems. What is it that destroys a life, the, the issues of sin and disobedience or the denial that there is any sin whatsoever in their life? And why is self-deception so important to talk about? Why is it the topic of so many books and articles and journals in the last 20 years? And the reason it's so important is self-deception is not the worst thing we do, but it's the reason we can do the worst things. And we need to be careful this morning because we come to a topic like this one and it's very easy and it's very convenient to listen to this sermon for someone else. To sit here and take notes so that you can pass it on to someone else that you think is deceived. And I want to warn you, friends, don't do this. God brought you here this morning. He wants to speak to you through his word. So don't waste the sermon on someone else. Listen for yourself. Listen to what the Lord is going to communicate to you in his word. And before we dive in, I'm going to pray. God, I ask that you would teach us this morning. 
Even in the midst of a sobering passage, God, may you teach us. May we hear from you and from your word. May we come away changed this morning. For your honor and for your glory. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. As we look at this chapter, I have three points along the way that explain this chapter. The, the first is the situation that they're in. Second is the excuses. And third is the hope. The situation, the excuses, the hope. First, the situation. Here's Saul, the king, commanded by God to destroy the enemies of Israel. In verses one through three, God gives the command, devote to destruction all that they have. The, the Amalekites were perpetual enemies of Israel. Very simply, they were very bad people. The whole conflict between them began when Israel was on their way out of Egypt and heading to the promised land, and, and they were alone and defenseless, and the Amalekites came and they raided them. And, and this opposition of them wasn't just a one-time event either. It was, it was a cons- constant provoking and, and a pillaging of them. And these people were deeply set against God and his people. And now came the time to bring justice. And this was not a war of conquest. This is a war of justice. And the goal of this attack was not to make Saul rich, but to execute justice on a rebellious people. Rebellious people. And, and Saul is explicitly told to take no prisoners. Don't, don't take anything from them. No wealth. And some have called this a holy war. I, I think a better term is a biblical war, a divine war. This is not about God's people going to fight in the name of God, but rather God going to fight in behalf of the people. There, there comes a point where, where God says, enough. Sin has consequences, and God does not allow creation destroying sin to go unchecked forever. And God always has been and still is the judge of all the earth. And God is gracious in his response to the Amalekites. He waits over 300 years since the first attack to this point here in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And so Saul hears the command of God and promptly disobeys. He goes and defeats the Amalekites, but not completely. It's obedience, but not really. As verse 9 says, Saul spares the life of Agag the king. It may seem like an act of mercy, but it's not. It, this wasn't mercy. No, this was pride on, on Saul's part. He spares the king's life to show others that he is a conquering king, that he is the king of kings. And, and the trophy for his war here is King Agag. He goes against what God told him to do. God sent him to do an act of justice, not an act of extending his country's power. This is what the Amalekites were known for. And God wants Saul to do the opposite. He wants justice to be served. This was not supposed to be a military move. But what does Saul do? He defeats them with God's help, and yet he doesn't obey. He captures Agag and the best of the livestock, which is their wealth. Ironically, he does the exact opposite of what God had asked. In his mind, as we'll see, he, he does 99.9% of what God asks, but in God's mind, that's zero. He didn't obey. He does the very thing God said that he had to punish the Amalekites for. He does the very thing that God hates. 
And this is Saul. This is what Saul has been doing all along. And so God speaks to Samuel in verse 10. He says, I regret that I've made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Now this verse may have caught you off guard about God. Why would he say that God regrets? How can an all-knowing God regret anything? And we need to know the different translations for this word here, this Hebrew word, nachem. It means repent, regret, or grieve. There are theologians who, in attempting to understand passages like this in Genesis 6, they want to point it that there seems to be some limits now to God's knowledge, they say. This is known as open theism, which is based on the notion that the future is open to God as to humanity. But that contradicts the rest of Scripture and the understanding that God is all-knowing. When the language is used here that God regrets, he's speaking in terms that we can understand as a listener. It means that he, he really feels the pain of the current circumstances, but, but not that he's unaware of the future. With a quick look later in the chapter in verse 29, we see it confirmed. It says, and also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. So in this sense, God, God regrets, but it's not the same way that humanity does. He, he feels sadness for our sake when, when these decisions, these sinful decisions happen and the harm that it brings. But he most certainly does not share in the human response of wishing that he could go back and change it. That's not God. God cannot and will not be forced into our tiny box of thinking. He, he will not be mastered. Just because God knows in advance that some event will occur doesn't mean that God cannot experience appropriate emotions and reactions when it happens. He's not a God of you win some, you lose some. Non nonchalance is never listed as an attribute of God. Our God is not cold and indifferent to sin, the effects of sins. He, he grieves when there's sin. And this is what I believe we read here. And Samuel, what's his response? It's the same. It says, Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. So this is the situation. Saul disobeys the word of God. Now what happens when he's confronted by Samuel? This is number, point number two, the excuses. Saul, as we've seen, is an interesting character. There's, there's much to appreciate about him through the story. He's a, he's a strong and expressive guy in these chapters. He's excitable and enthusiastic to do something. But as we see, he, he was very much well-loved. But he lacked the ability to love God and serve him only. Saul was, was in this for only one person, himself. And, and he is self-deceived. And when you're self-deceived, you are ultimately looking out for yourself. And Saul, I believe, gives us at least three excuses in why he did what he did in these events. And these excuses are as old as the Garden of Eden. And self-deception brings about these excuses. When we come to verse 13, Saul comes out to greet Samuel, and Saul is completely oblivious, and yet he isn't. Self-deception is the ability to know the truth, but know the truth but you don't want to deal with the truth. It, it, it's that you know it, and yet you don't really know it because you don't want to know it. Does that make sense? This is what the human heart is able to do under sin. It's, it's baffling. Self-deception is the ability to, to rationalize and, and justify things you know are true and are wrong. In self-deception, you see the truth, but it's too painful to hold. 
So you hide it. You cover it. You give excuses to remove the truth from the conversation. You want it gone. And the ability of self-deception is to, is to know a truth, but if this truth is too painful, if the results of this truth might hurt too much, you hide the truth. You cover the truth. You seek to undermine the truth, to, to cut its legs out, to remove the truth at any cost so that you don't have to deal with the consequences of the truth. This is self-deception. How does this flesh out in life? Let me give you just a couple of examples, some handles that you can hold. Mrs. Jones has been called to the school by a teacher because her son Bobby has been caught stealing money from other students' desks. This isn't the first time this has happened. No, this is the fourth and she's noticed that some money has been missing from her purse at home at night. Mrs. Jones has heard the accusations. She has seen the disappearance of money. But when the rubber meets the road, she sticks up for Bobby. My Bobby would never do that. Maybe you heard wrong. Maybe those other kids are lying. You, you, have you done a thorough investigation? My Bobby's not a thief. Why won't you listen to my Bobby? He said he didn't do it. The evidence is there. The truth is right in front of her. My son is a thief, but it's too hard to hold. It's too painful. The evidence is all there. That's why she hides her purse when she comes home. She doesn't chide him or confront him. She just steers her thoughts away from the truth. She, she makes an excuse. It can't, it can't be. You see, parents have difficulty with this. Why? Because if they admit that their child has this sin, then they feel they would need to admit more about themselves that they're comfortable doing. They can't hold this truth, so they seek to cover it, to, to excuse it. Here's another example. There's a college student who was raised in church, but not well attended, and before leaving for school, he, he heads out, excited for, for college. He gets on campus, and he desires to be an engineer. He, he wants to be liked and, and involved. He wants to have an experience in college, and Deep down, he knows that there's a God, that there's right and wrong. There are, he knows that there are moral absolutes, but those are, are painful to accept and apply when you, when you want to be accepted by this world, this, this college world. And he definitely wants to keep the girlfriend that he has now, so he'll do whatever he can to keep the girlfriend. He'll cross those lines. He has to, in his mind, to live in this way. And there's plenty of evidence that he believes that there's a God. He, he talks as if racism is wrong. And that shows you believe in God because you believe in a moral absolute. But when he's confronted on campus by a Christian to follow Christ, he excuses himself by saying that Christians are all hypocrites. And he covers himself. He excuses himself from dealing with the hard truth that he's confronted with. We all have the infinite capacity to be self-deceived. 
We all have excuses to try to hide and run from the truth when it's too painful for us to deal with and to hold. And Saul has the same issues. And Saul has used now excuses to lift the burden of truth from him. As I said, there's three excuses here I want to cover. First, Saul excuses his disobedience because of the other people. Did you catch that as we read through it? Look at verse 15. Saul said, they have brought from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Do you hear it in his words? Verse 21, but the people took the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction. Is this the language you want from a leader? The people are the ones that brought me to do this. They are the ones who pushed me to save the livestock. Look, Samuel, it was them. Don't you see when the truth is too hard to hold, when you know you have sinned, but you really don't want to own up to it, you blame other people. It's their fault. They're the ones that brought me to this decision. It's their fault. I think again of Mrs. Jones and her son Bobby. It's not her son's fault. It's the school's fault. What are they teaching these kids? Aren't there some security cameras, some way to, to see footage in the classroom of what happened here? Why don't the school take care of this? Does this teacher even know how to ask right questions to find the truth? I think it's her fault. And what about the college student? He, he blames the hypocrites for why he won't believe in the Bible and trust church anymore. You see, he was burned by, by a church at some point, by people in a church, by Christians. So he's not trusting them. So this is his reason now to disregard the truth that he's confronted with. It's their fault. They did wrong, so I'm never gonna trust again. But he forgets that just because people have done wrong, we cannot throw out the entire church or the gospel. You know, there are a lot of lying lawyers in this world. Do we throw out the entire judicial system? No. Just using an excuse now to cover the reason why he doesn't want to accept the truth of the gospel. He can't hold the truth. And so he has to blame someone. It's their fault. And this is what Saul does here. He's, he's blaming the people, all of the people. It's, it's their fault. And it's an excuse so that he can remove himself from responsibility. The, the truth is too hard to hold. Second, Saul excuses his choice because he wanted to serve God. Saul excuses his choice because he wants to serve God. It's there in verse 15. Did you catch it there? Saul said, they have brought, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen. And then get this, to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Verse 21, the same thing, but the people took the spoil, the sheep, the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God. You see, he's, he's blaming this decision. He's using this excuse because he's, he's saying, I'm doing it for you, God. And this is common and very dangerous. He's saying, look, Samuel, I, I may have done wrong as you define wrong, but it was for the Lord. Maybe, maybe two wrongs don't make a right, but maybe if I do a lot of rights, it'll wipe out a wrong. You can't see my heart. How dare you judge my motives? 
You know, you hear Saul and you begin to think, what is going on? Saul's saying, look, I may have done something wrong, may have done something wrong, but it was because I wanted to do something so right. I wanted to sacrifice this to the Lord. Surely the Lord will be honored by this. So what that I've lied to people, that I've deceived people? Uh, I'm doing this as a ministry for the Lord. It's okay. So what if I've stolen, I've, I've taken things that weren't mine? I'm doing it for God. It's this sanctified Robin Hood story now. Maybe you sit there and you think, you hear the church now. Maybe we're in financial crisis. And the budget is just in trouble and you, you can't do anything about it. So you think, I'm going to go to the bank. And I'm going to put on a mask and I'm going to tell them to give me all their money. And I'm going to go give it to the church. This is what God would want. It's for God. He has to be honored by this, right? The answer is, thank you for agreeing there, all in unison. No. Why? Tell me from here. Why? Thank you. Thou shalt not steal. And there's plenty of other evidence there. Exodus 20:15. And you say, well, Jeff, the, the church really needs it. They're desperate. God's word says otherwise. God's word. Remember in the beginning of this chapter, God's word came to Saul. What about the ministry leader that pours their life out for the church? They, they love the Lord. They want to serve the Lord. They give so much time and then so much money for the Lord. And they never saw recognition. But along the way, they neglect their spouse. They sacrifice their kids. Those kids never saw their parent as much as they should. The family barely knows them. The kids grow up. They leave the house. They want nothing to do with them or the Lord or the church. Why? Because their parent was self-deceived to think that God wanted their service more than their commitment to the family that God had given them. And what does the Lord think of this? Verse 22, and Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen to the fat of rams. In verse 23, for rebellion is a sin of divination and the presumption is iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. You see, Saul is using an excuse here. He's saying, I'm doing this for you, Lord. I brought back the sacrifice, the, the livestock, to give it to you, Lord. So you didn't get it, did you? God didn't want the sheep. He didn't want the fatted calves. God didn't want the lambs. He didn't want the oxen. He didn't want the king. He wanted you. And by obeying just part of the way, 
you don't obey at all. He wanted you. And Saul, by doing it your own way, you held on to yourself. But God wanted you. You see, Saul, you're a very religious person. You think you know more than God. You think you can earn his favor. That you think you can get into God's good graces by doing things for him, but you don't get it. He wants you. And friends, this is the point of the gospel. Maybe you've been here for weeks and months, or maybe this is your first Sunday, and you see yourself as a continual mess up. You're trying in some way to earn your way to God. And you walk and you fail and you fall and you're trying. And this is the point of the gospel. You can't save yourself. God had to come down and save you. You could never get to heaven on your own. God had to come down and get you. First Samuel First Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. Friend, he came to rescue you, to rescue you from yourself, because you couldn't do it. Does God delight in the offerings that we bring to him more than obedience to his word? You see, friends, this is an excuse to disobey his word. Saul is saying, your word is not enough. I want to serve you, and I'll serve you the way that I want to. It's the same issue the Pharisees had. And Jesus, in the Gospel of Matthew, says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so I'll say to you again, my non-Christian friends that are here, we're, we're happy you're here. But if you're living in a way to try to earn your way to heaven, you are disobeying God's word. God's word says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Turn from your unbelief today. Trust and believe in Christ. And this is not an invitation, this is a summons. The gospel is a summons. Christ is the only way. He's the only way. And if you have questions, come see us. This is why we're here. 
This is why we serve as pastors and elders, and we want to serve you in this way. We will be at the door as you leave, and we want to talk with you. We want to sit down and walk you through the gospel so that you can see and understand. Third, Saul's excuse, his third excuse, Saul excuses his disobedience because he feared losing people. Look at verse 30. And then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. You see, Saul enjoyed being this king. He had this position. He had the power. He had the love and support of the people. He loved the success of this war. That's why in verse 12, Saul sets up a monument for himself. He set up a monument. He he made a trophy in his own honor to celebrate the victory. Saul feared losing the praise of people. And Saul wasn't going to let this happen so easily. He's going to fight now. He's going to kick and scratch for this position And he sets up a monument. You know, in that day, if you defeated a king, you never destroyed a king. You kept the king because that would make you the king of all kings. It made you an emperor, not just a king. This is what the Assyrians did. They took the kings and they would gloat. Look at us. Look at, look at the kings we've conquered. Look what we've done. We have an empire. And Saul so desperately wants to be included in this. He didn't want to just be a king of Israel. He wanted to be the king above all other kings. And he's confronted now by Samuel, and he he can't hold this sin. And so he covers it by blaming on the fear of others that they leave. When in reality, he feared losing power. He feared losing his position. He feared losing the influence that he would have. And friends, this delights Satan to no end. He would much rather have people pursuing power and position rather than pursuing God. You see, Satan doesn't come along and whisper in your ear, believe in me. It's not what he says. Satan comes along and whispers in your ear, believe in yourself. Believe in yourself. Isn't this what he did with Jesus in the Gospels? Tempting him to do it himself? to believe in himself, to help himself. Satan, in fact, quotes Psalm 91. And that's intended to stir a high view of God's sustaining care. He he takes this passage and he twists it, trying to to bring about an inappropriate sense of self-importance. Believe in yourself. Saul, your, your problem is that you think you are small, You think you're little, and now you're trying to make yourself big. Did you catch that in the passage? Verse 17, Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. You you think you are small, but look, God in his grace made you big. He has made you great. He chose you. He chose you when you were nothing. Though you were small at one time, God made you king. He anointed you. 
Saul, you need to stop this madness. You were small, but now God made you big, and yet you're going to the world to make yourself big. You reject the grace of God. You, you're trying to now work your way to earn this honor. And friends, this is an issue for us. This is an issue for most of you in this room. You are small, you are weak, you are ineffectual. And it's God who, who grows you, who gives to you. And you're trying to do it on your own. We're sinners. We, we know we are small. But this is why self-deception is such a dangerous thing. We know we are small, but, but we find ways to hide from ourselves that we are sinners, that we're small and inadequate, that we're flawed. And if the truth comes to us that we're sinners, we can't bear to hold it. We can't live under that weight because we need to make ourselves big in some way. You know, coming back to this illustration, Mrs. Jones can't stand the thought that her Bobby is a thief. She knows that he is. She sees the evidence. The proof is before her eyes, but she's going to deny it. She, she has to deny it. She has to see herself as a good mom. She gave so much to make Bobby something, something that she could be proud of. So now she's trying to save herself. And she has to fight because she can't acknowledge that she's small, that maybe she's failed. She can't live with that. So she suppresses it. She covers it. And she rejects the gospel in these moments. She has to hold herself up. She has to build a monument for herself. This is what Saul does. And Samuel comes along to confront him, to show him his heart. And he says in verse 23, for rebellion is as the sin of divination, the presumption is iniquity, as is iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from a being king. He's saying disobedience is a sin of divination. Arrogance is, is as evil of idolatry. And Saul, Saul but says, uh, Samuel, I'm not that bad. I'm, I'm orthodox. I go to church. I worship God. I'm not evil. It's not like I'm worshiping an idol. But Samuel says, yes, you are Saul. Worship yourself. And parents, when you protect Bobby, you're protecting yourself. Your idol of being a good parent. And college students, you're, you're protecting your idol, the acceptance of others, because you know you're little. And Saul here is fully deceived in thinking that his, his way is the best way. And you hear the excuses. You can hear him trying to cover up his disobedience. He can't hold it. He can't bear the weight anymore. And so he has to, he has to cover it somehow. So what hope is there for Saul? What hope is there for us? Because if you're here and you're human and you've tried to cover your sin in one of these ways, what hope do you have now? That leads to my third and final point, our hope. 
And the only way to hope is to acknowledge that it is true that you have covered your sin, your disobedience, and you repent. The first step in repentance is to acknowledge that there is sin. And Samuel is a faithful friend to Saul. He loved him, I'm sure. You can hear it in his words when the Lord comes to him in verse 11 to tell him what is he's moving on from Saul. What is Samuel's response? He says that he was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. He's grieved. He's angry. He's troubled. Have you ever felt this for a friend? Troubled. Your self-deception is so strong. And your heart is just grieved. This is Samuel as he comes to Saul. He's grieved by the sin of Saul. It bothers him. And this is what Christians do when they're burdened by the sins of others. It affects them. We don't brush it off. We don't just really move on. We're grieved. We, we mourn. We hurt for them and for the Lord whose name is tarnished. You see, friends, too many people are worried about being caught in sin. They, they're fearful of what it will look like, what, it will, what will happen then, what will people think of them, what will happen next. And they're so worried about themselves and what people think instead of what God thinks. And they're unaware of the stench of their sin before a holy God. And when Israel continues his disobedience, Amos writes, I hate, I despise your feast, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them and the peace offerings of your fat animals. I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps. I will not listen. They wanted to keep up the facade that everything's okay, and God's saying it's not okay. He isn't impressed by your religion. Saul doesn't see this. He doesn't understand the implications of his disobedience. And when his loving friend Samuel confronts them, he runs from his sin. Some say that he repents here. I don't believe that Saul repents. And the reason why is I can read the rest of the book. He doesn't repent. Samuel confronts him. He speaks the word of God from him to, or to him. It says in verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, this is his repentance. He says, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned to go away, and Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret for he is not a man that he should have regret. And then he said, verse 30, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people, before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. 
It may seem like repentance, friends, but it's not. Saul vaguely acknowledges his sin, but it's veiled with these excuses that we've covered. Do you hear it? I, I've sinned, but it's because of the people. I fear the people. Please pardon me, but I want things to go back the way that they were. Look, I've sinned, but why can't we just go back to the way things were before? Come, come with me. Honor me before the leaders, before the people. Show, show them that things can just be back to normal. And see, Saul's repentance isn't repentance at all. It's his way of trying to excuse his sin, to, to diminish his sin. And when we do not repent, our voice rules our life or are ruled by the voices of other people. But when we repent, it is God's voice that shapes our life. And this is the test then, friends. Are we able to listen to the voice of God? And, and where do we hear the voice of God? Where do we hear the voice of God? The Bible. Do you have one? Have you read it this week? Have you opened it up and digested it? Looked for it to change your life? Are you submitting your life to what the word of God says? Letting the word change you? See, a, a repenting person is a listening person. A person who listens to the word of God. And, and, and we're looking for possibly more elders and deacons to serve in our church. But if you're not a repenting person, we're not interested. I'll just be blunt. Don't talk to me. Repent. Learn repentance. What is true repentance? First, it's, it's the end of all excuses. We, we face up to our guilt and all of its ugliness rather than trying to cover it up. You know, when our words are, are filled with all these sort of excuses, then there isn't true repentance. So we, we end the excuses. Second, repentance is a movement towards God. It is turning back to God. It's, it's more than frustration or shame with yourself. It's more than a concern for your reputation and how others may view you. It's a singular focus on God and what he thinks that's most important. If God is not in the center, then there's no true repentance. Third, true repentance will lead to a changed life. 2 Corinthians 7, 10 through 13 gives you the basis of a godly repentance. And when repentance doesn't lead to a change, then it's not a true repentance. Saul never truly repents. Read the rest of the book. But his successor, David, he did. Both had wicked sins, but David's response to his sin when he's confronted by Nathan was much different than Saul's response here. David is cut to the heart. He repents. If you want to see more about that, read Psalm 51. David has a much different response than Saul. He's repentant. Saul is sorry. And there's a big difference. Well, the chapter ends. And it ends with the tragic end of the king of the Amalekites. As Samuel now is forced to do the, the deed. chapter ends and Samuel did not see Saul again to the day of his death but Samuel grieved over Saul when we read Hebrews 10 5 through 7 it says this 
Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written of me in the scroll of the book. The, the Hebrew writer goes on to say, by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. You see what's going on? You have to know this or you'll never get out of self-deception. Jesus was great in his own eyes and became small. So we who were small might be made great. Why would God take me a sinner, a weak person? Why would he simply just anoint Saul as king? He makes kings and priests. Why would, he, why would he do that? See, for Saul, maybe it was a difficult thing to grasp, but it shouldn't be for us. Because there is one who was great and became small, so those of us who are small don't have to make ourselves great. Because we can never do it. When Jesus Christ died, it was the perfect obedience and the perfect sacrifice that delighted God. God was delighted with him. So when you believe in him, he's delighted in you. And if you grasp the grace of God, you can handle the fact that your son is a thief. You can handle the fact that you will be rejected by your friends for following Jesus. You can handle the fact that you can make mistakes because you can handle it because God has given you grace to, to free you from the consequences of those sins. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Does God delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? He has done it so God can be delighted in you. Christ has done it all. He satisfied what was necessary in our behalf. He paid for our sins because we couldn't do it ourselves. And this makes us free. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you have led us into this chapter, into the difficulty of recognizing sin and deception. And Father, we ask that you would give us the power to wipe off all the masks that we wear and break through this self-defenses to see the ways in which we deceive ourselves. This is what we asked this morning, God. We realize in the end, it's not a matter of noticing the excuses. It's not a matter of accountability if we don't take the grace of God. Help us not to reject it. Help us to see that we don't have to make ourselves big anymore because we have Christ 
Help us, remind us that we are free now. We are free from the weight of sin. We are liberated. Grow us, God. Remind us again and afresh every morning of this glorious gospel. Let us never grow comfortable with the gospel. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.